I, I have been eagerly waiting to get to verse number 30 of Romans 8. It, if, if it shows a little bit of excitement today, I can't help it. Uh, we are on verse number 30. And uh, this is one of the verses that I picked this whole chapter because of a verse like this. And I said, oh, I can't wait to get there. It's only taken 33 sermons to get to this verse. But we've made it. And we are on verse number 30, Romans 8. Please join me there. I want to read verse 28, 29, and 30, the little paragraph we're looking through about security in God's program. The fact that we as believers are secure in the things God has done. So I'm going to look at verse 28, 29, 30 and reading it to you, and then we will um, look at verse 30 specifically today. It says, for we know, verse 28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Lord, this is a section of your word that is just fascinating, exciting, and wonderful. Thank you for it. We are going to attempt to understand it a little bit more today. I pray that it draws our heart to your throne with such adoration and praise that uh, our mouths cannot contain the words. Our hearts are welling up before you, and we can't help but shout out as that songwriter once did, Oh, I wish I had a thousand tongues to declare your praise. Thank you for this passage. Help us with it, we pray, as we... Uh, submit ourselves to your leading, your teaching, as we simply sit at your feet and ask you to talk to your children. We are so blessed that you, list, that you care for us this much. Help us to understand it better now in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a word that popped into my mind when I read verse number 30, and it's the word certainty. Think about that word for a little bit, the word certainty. I, I actually pulled it up in the dictionary so I could give you some precise definitions for such a word as certainty. The definitions come this way. A firm conviction that something is the case. Firm conviction. The quality of being reliably true. A fact that is definitely true or an event that is definitely going to take place. A person or thing that may be relied on. Now, most of you would have guessed at similar definitions if I asked you, what does certainty mean? But I found this interesting as well. At the very same website that I pulled up this uh, definition, they had this chart underneath the word, and it represented word usage. And I don't know how they figure out how often a word is used, if, if it's, you know, recorded in books or if it's recorded in uh, literature, maybe newspapers or magazines or what. They, I don't know that they walked around recording everybody's words and, and trying to figure out who used it the most and how often they used it. If, 
if they did that with me, the word groovy would go way up on the chart, you know. But uh, the, the, the word certainty was interesting in that chart as they had it there. Word usage in the 1800s, especially around 1820, was at its peak. That word was used. And then over the years, they went from the you know, 1850s, 1900, 1950s, so on and so forth. When they got to 2010, it's at its lowest point on that chart. And I said, what a curious concept that is. What, what has brought it to that? It's even half what it used to be in, in word usage. And I said, well, what would, what would be the difference? And I want to venture a guess, just a simple guess. Uh, because I don't think this is only true in the secular use of the word. But I'm going to suggest it's also in the religious circles <laughs> that the diminish of the word certainty has happened in the last handful of years. And I want to ask you this. If this projection is true, why is there a decrease of declaring certainty from the pulpit? Because I do put the finger right here. We could, we could blame the theologians, and we probably should. We could blame the professors out there, pastors, those who study end times, if they're called eschatologists or whatever they're supposed to be called, those who specialize in end times. And we might be able to ask them, why are you so reluctant to use the word certainty in your statements? Why is there a diminish uh, of such a word like that? Could it be fear? You know, opposition is not exciting to have your critics, to have those who debate you. Uh, they all seem to like to argue. You know that's the world we live in today. It doesn't matter what the point is. It's that when you use the word certainty, it gets some people all hunched up and ready to fight. Our, our society does not like the word certainty at all. And I would guess that if it is hard for a theologian or a professor or a pastor to use the word certainty in their statements, in their doctrine, what has come of the average believer in the church then? Who maybe is not quite so equipped to defend God's word as these others were. How often would certainty be used by us here in our own pews. Now I've heard that, uh, I've actually heard this said, that doctrinal statements uh, should not have terms in it, like pre-tribulational rapture. They should not have terms like uh, seven-year tribulation period. That they should not have terms like premillennial coming of Christ because they're not mentioned in the Bible. No, they are. But because they cause division. Is that what's pushing our society today? The fear of causing division because you use a certain word, a certain statement? If you smell ecumenicalism in the air, you're right. You want to know what that word means? Because you've heard it enough by now. It is promoting or relating to unity among the world's Christian churches. Unity at the cost of doctrine. 
unity at the cost of certainty. Now, that's a heavy topic, I'll confess. I want to go lighter just for a few minutes, all right? As I was putting this message together Friday morning, there was a team of men down at the bottom of the stairs pulling a cornerstone out of the wall. And as they were chiseling away at the cornerstone there, it was about two hours into the project, and yeah, you could get tired after a while, and conversation, conversation started to rise whether there was actually a box inside of the cornerstone. If the stone was actually once removed from the spot, or did they just remove the bricks around it and reach in? All those conversations were going on. We were wondering if we were going to find the Ark of the Covenant in there, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, another copy maybe. All kinds of interesting conversation went up. But what was interesting is the further you dig around that stone, the heavier it started to look. And, and there was certainty you know, kind of waning a little bit as to whether or not we would find something inside that box. Now, I'm not an authority on cornerstones, but I do find my, com my confidence in the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what scripture has said about him. He is the one that the builders have rejected. Matter of fact, Peter said it this way, and listen carefully. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Very important verse. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, if you were reading the King James Version, you'd say would not be confounded. And you have to look that word up sometimes, and that's the word disappoint. It's the word for disgrace. It's the word for humiliated or put to shame. And what Scripture says so clearly is, our confidence, our certainty about the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ and our trust in him will never, never disappoint you never disappoint you. I love that certainty. That's something I could stand on. So what I see, since it's recorded in Scripture, is that whatever God has said, whatever he has written in this book, is absolutely true. It's undebatable to me. It's undeniable to me. It's reliable to me. It's believable to me. It is certain to me. That's where I stand. His promises are trustworthy. And if you use, well, I don't use gambling terms, but I would say, if you staked your eternity on it, you could be sure of it. You can be absolutely sure. Because our foundation, our cornerstone, will never fail us. Never. So I take you to Romans chapter 8 this morning, and I look at this paragraph we've been looking at, verse 28, 29, and 30, and it speaks of God's program, his plan. It, it, it's great how we see from beginning to end what he is doing. Verse number 28, he caused all things, it says. Now that's a pretty big picture. 
all things to work together into one good thing. We've talked about that for several weeks. But this is regarding his own people. You see the rest of verse number 28. We don't want to set that to the side at all, but to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I define this very carefully for you because I'm not just talking about anybody, everybody, all over the place. I'm talking about you, believer. That's what Scripture is talking to you. You who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's plan is right before your eyes. This is what he's doing concerning you. And I say that again because there might be some who don't know Jesus Christ here and among us. I don't want you to get false hopes, quite honestly, that you think just because God's doing all this work, I'm just going to fall into place somewhere along that way. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, these verses are about you. And that's what it's saying. It's saying that God has caused all these great things, and I know his plan is even bigger than what I could describe, but he brings it down to one great thing. You say, well, what's that one great thing? Verse number 29, I think, defines it. Because he explains in verse number 29 that his planning is perfect because he foreknew. That's where it starts. He knew it all before. He knew you. Before this world was even built, he knew you. And he predestined, he set the boundaries of what we are to be. We're to be conformed ones. Conformed ones to the image of his son. That's the one big thing. That's the great thing that he's building us. All these things to be. That we should bear the image of his son. That we should have that stamped on us, as one of our hymns says. That we should be like him. That he, our Savior, the end of verse number 29 says, would be first above all. And I think that's quite a picture. Matter of fact, the whole thing gives me goosebumps. I don't know about you. It's an amazing thing that God is doing in our midst. Amazing that he would take the likes of you and me and, and make us these, these who bear the image of Christ. There's no perfect plan ever laid out than what I see here. I make plans for my life, and you make plans for your life. How well are we at bringing those about sometimes? Sometimes they happen, sometimes they don't, right? It's as if we wish we could control the future. We can't even control this afternoon, can we? We, we look at things and say, I, I don't know. They didn't come about as I thought they would. I can't control these. The fact is this, God can and God does. He's the master planner. And he sits on the throne. And he sees the end from the beginning, which is a phenomenal concept to me. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows the course it's going to take. He knows where it's going to twist. He knows where it's going to turn. He can maneuver. He can shake. He can bend what needs to be bent. He can break what needs to be broken. He can snap something off because it's in the way of something better. But he's at work. And he does these incredible things of sometimes tearing down and sometimes building up. But he has a finished project in view. 
And that's what he's aiming at. And he says in these words I've, I've kind of written here, I'm going to draw all these things together. And I'm going to draw all these folks together to the same place. And I'm going to stand them before my throne. And I'm going to sum them all up in Christ Jesus. And I will make him the pinnacle of my plan. And I will make those, uh, all those that he has bought with his blood resemble him. And I will have every knee bow, and I will have every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I will be pleased. That's God's plan. That's what he's doing. Now, does that make sense to you? When you read those words, do they just kind of excite you a little bit? Or a lot? Just to think, really? This is what he's doing? It's hard to imagine this, but it involves us. It involves you, believer in Christ. This is God's program for you. It's really what it's all about. You can be certain of it. It's not going to change. Matter of fact, God wrote it down, so you know it doesn't change. And I hope you're certain of it. Now, you may think, well, Pastor, that must be the end of the story then. It's like opening all the presents, right? Do you ever get kind of that letdown feeling when there's nothing left under the Christmas tree? Oh, it's like, oh, we're done? But opened all the presents. When I read these verses, I think, well, this is beyond even my wildest dreams that God has done all this. And I just bask in the glory of the whole thing. And then God says, verse 30, and, and it blows me away. And, he's not done. I, I, I have to tell you this. Oh, this is so, this is the verse that gets me all excited. There's an and that starts it. And when I see that little word, I say, oh, wow, what else? Like those great commercials where they sell it for $19.99. And then they say, and, and guess what happens? You get two for the same price, right? This is the excitement. Suddenly, there's an and. And I said, Lord, there's an and in the passage. What do we do with that? Let's talk about and for a few minutes, okay? The whole sermon's not built on and, but it's there and it excites me a great deal. I heard to, I'll tell you what the sermon's built on. Two things. And, and the letters E-D. Right? There's your outline. Okay, so you outline it. And is the first one. You ready? And is a simple little Greek word. It's two letters long. We spell it in English D-E. It's death. Right? Simple little word. It sits right here in front of you if you were reading the Greek text and you see that little day there and you say, okay, what's that mean? Well, Four different things. Little word packed with a lot of information. You ready for this? This is fun. I'll bring it down simple level. This is fun. It could be used as the word but. More times than not, it is, really, in Scripture. They translate it as but. And it's meant to be uh, the opposite of what was just said. And if that were the case, it wouldn't make sense in our passage, would it? 
because in our passage it talks about his great plan about what he's doing in us to make us into the image of Christ and all that. And it doesn't seem to suggest to me the opposite, that he's going to call us, predestine us, justify us, glorify us. That doesn't seem to be the opposite at all, does it? So I said, no, I don't think the opposite. I don't think but is going to be our best option here. So what else could it be? Now you're down to three options. The third, second one is an explanatory term. They would use it in the sense of and, showing that God's steps in what he's doing to make us like his son uh, is to be explained this way. To make us like his son, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, he glorified us. All right? You know what? That makes a lot of sense. To me, it makes a lot of sense. It is ex explanatory in that nature. Uh, but here's what's curious to me, because there are other ways to say that simple phrase, to explain something, and Paul had just used it in the previous verse. Verse number 29 started with that same explanation type of a phrase, and why would Paul switch his conjunction suddenly? He said, well, if he meant to just explain it, I said, maybe he'd keep the same word. That would make sense to me. And I said, well, maybe explanation is true, but I don't know. Let me ask other questions. So I go to my third option, and they call it continuative. You like that word? That's our word, and. That means this is going on, and this is going on, and it's just adding piece to piece, like the little couplers between the boxcars on the trains that go by. There's a little hook there that puts the trains together, and this little word and comes along, and it's just adding one little car to the next car as it comes down the road. And so he's just explained his plan in verse number 29, and he just kind of links this action to those actions and says, well, this is a, just a continuation of my big plan. And for that, I would say, yeah, but it's also starting to sound very complicated, isn't it? This two-letter letter word is sounding pretty intense. So I go to my fourth option. And this is a possibility I like. <laughs> I like this one especially. They use it to mark something emphatically. In other words, they want to heighten the intensity of what's being said. They, they want to expound on it and, and, if you will, turn the dial up a little bit higher. So when I see this little word, and the King James says, moreover, and that means further than this, or in addition to this, sometimes it's suggested as indeed. I started thinking, well, would that be this word? And I looked up one reference I trust very much, and they said that very few Greek scholars have expressed this emphatic or intensive idea. That means indeed, or really, or in fact. And it's actually translated yay. I mean, not like yay, but, you know, Y-E-A. Yay, in some translations in uh, other verses. And they say, well, not too many people go down that road. But I'll tell you something. I'm not afraid to. I love the emphatic. I love the intensive. And as I'm reading this, if, if my heart rate starts to go up a little bit when I get to verse 30, I think that's exactly what's happening here. It's like he has just told me every single thing he's had 
before me, and I'm absolutely amazed, and I'm overwhelmed. And then he pulls from behind his back one more thing and says, and, and it gets me excited. I like the emphatic. What I see is all this and this too. You ready for it? Oh, wait till you see this. See, God loves his son very much. That's an understatement, by the way. He loves his son very much. And I, I don't even know how to put my brain around it, truly. It's too big for us. But verse number 29 was a good reference for that. Because what he said there is that all God is doing is shaping us to match the image of his son. So that his son's identity and his son's character is reflected in each and every one of us. Really, that's you too, right? That his son's character and identity is reflected in you. He loves his son so much that everywhere he looks, he wants to see him reflected. It's like having pictures of your beloved on every wall in your house. It's like having a picture of your beloved on the dashboard of your car. It's like having it on the, the front of your phone when you turn on your phone and there's your beloved. It's where you see the desktop of your computer, a picture of your beloved. You pull out your wallet and guess what the center picture is right there in front of you? A picture of your beloved. Every place you turn your eyes, you see that picture. God wants to see his son in everything. He wants to see the reflection of his son's identity and his character in everything. And I don't know if I could express it as well as I want to, but that, to me, is a glimpse of how much he loves his son. He wants every one of us to stand before that throne and reflect his son. That's amazing to me. But here's the question that kind of sits in the back of the mind, and if you don't have it, I'm going to give it to you. Right? And then you're going to say, oh, I never thought that before, but now that you've said it, here's the question. In the process of becoming like him, in the process of being summed up in all things unto his glory, do somehow we lose our personal identity? Do somehow we lose our own person? Is it all lost in the bigness of it all? That's a question that, that kind of sits back there and says, well, what, what about who we are. Are we lost in this whole picture? How would you like to see God pull out one more big piece of his plan and see that you are still loved by him so dearly that even though his son comes to have first place in everything, you are not lost in the shuffle, so to speak. It gets very personal when you get to verse 30 very personal, very certain. And all I've been trying to do this morning is to introduce you to it. It says in Romans 8.30, and on top of this, in reality, moreover, however you want to start this, just so you raise it up a notch, those whom he predestined, that's you, believer in Jesus Christ, that's you, those these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, and that's you, believer in Jesus Christ. 
he called you. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, who's that? That's you. That's you, believer in Jesus Christ. He also glorified. Wow, what rich words we have in front of us right now. I really want to define them for you. That thing won't let me right now. We're coming back to it. I can't stop on one sermon on verse 30 anyway. So we're going to define words. But I want to show you something because there is such power in the phrase you just read. Though these whom he predestined, these whom he called, these whom he justified, these whom he glorified. We are talking about the same individuals all the way through that passage. All right? The folks that are called these are identified in verse number 29 because that's what pronouns do, don't they? They go back to point back to the noun that it's supposed to reference. And the reference in verse number 29 was that last word, brethren. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. You're in the brethren. That's the phrase we use, the brethren. He's talking about the same individuals. The brethren are these who are predestined, these who are called, these who are justified, these who are glorified. And what's fascinating in this, watch it very carefully. In all of the acts that are recorded in verse number 30, God did all of them. He called. He predestined. He justified. I know I got your order out of place. He glorified. But he did it all, didn't he? And if he didn't do it, it would never get done. Because it's impossible for you to predestine yourself. Think about that for a few minutes. That's impossible. You weren't there. It's impossible for you to call yourself into this family of God. You don't do it. That's the whole point of being called or invited is the word there. It's impossible for you to justify yourself. And that's true. You, there's no way we can ever justify ourselves. No way. Wait till we define that word. There is no way you could have glorified yourself either. This is what God has done. And if he didn't do it, it would never get done. But we mark that with this. We also say this. And what he's done for one of the brethren, he's done for all of the brethren. For I'm not called any different than you're called. I'm not justified in a greater degree than you've been justified. I won't be glorified in some measure different than your glorification. All of them share the same thing that God has done. The same degree. I say, okay, I like that. And I also like this. Because once he's done one act, he does all four. He's not going to just do 75% of them for you. Leave off one of them. You know, he doesn't mind that he predestined you, justified you, glorified you. But that calling thing, I don't know if maybe he didn't think that was good for you. No, he does all four. All four for every brother. All four. 
Okay, so I see these things and I say, okay, these are these are powerful things, because not one of the brethren comes up missing in any part of the plan. All of it is accomplished perfectly, just as God has said. And that word "and" is in front of it. That "and" means it's just as complete for me as it is for you. Just as complete. All of these actions are complete. Let me show you what I mean. You ready? I think this is very impressive in this book right now. We understand predestined to be a term from way long time ago. We studied that a little bit already. It was from way long time ago in a past action. God predestined us. He chose us. Ephesians 1 Verse 3, 4, that paragraph there, it says, Even before the world was created, God chose us. That's a phenomenal concept to me. We would say then, it is done. Would it be? It is done. If he did it way back then, isn't it done? He predestined us. It's done. Now, in our English terminology... Many of our translations just simply put two little letters on the end of a word. Take our day and turn it around. D-E-2-E-D. And they put it on the end of the word to make a verb past tense. What do we mean by past tense? He predestined. Done. Past tense. Already accomplished. What the, the Greek tense would say is it's aorist. Aorist. Well, that sounds impressive. That simply means it's an action completed. The simple word is this. The fact of the action is done. The fact of the action is done. So when it comes to the word predestined, it is what? Done. Done. Now, what does it say about being called? Verse 30. It says called, once again. In English, most of our translations read the same. What's the last two letters? ED. That's past tense. The fact of the action is done. You've been called. Now, you wouldn't be saved unless you were called. <laughs> but he called you. Now you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Fact of the action, done. Matter of fact, Paul used that several times in the book of Romans already, which we didn't study the whole book. But in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, you're called of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 7, he called you called as saints. In chapter 8, verse 28, which we did see, we saw to those who are called according to his purpose. You've been called. You've been called. Done. Done. Isn't that great? All right. Let's move on to justified. Justified. Oh, what a sweet word that is. What a sweet word that is. Look at the last two letters in your English translation. It probably reads the same. What does it look like? Two letters. E-D. Done. Done? Are you sure? Done. The fact of the action means it's done. You are justified. And you say, I don't know. God does. 
He said it that way. If he had a question mark, do you think he would have said it like that? He says, justified. Done. Wait till we study that. Woo! One more. Last word. You know what I'm about to do. Glorified. Oh, I love that. Glorified. The fact of the action is what? Done. Done. You say, I'm not glorified yet. <laughs> You've been looking in your mirror again. What do you mean you're not glorified yet? Paul said earlier in this chapter, he says, our bodies are still waiting for this whole thing to be finished, right? He's already expressed that to us. And if you're looking with your own eyes at it right now, you're going to say, I don't see the end of it. But look through it God's way. Glorified. The fact of the action is done. Done. Let me, let me show you. I want to convince you of this. Because this is what convinces me of the security I have in God's plan. This is where it sits right now for me. When I read these words and it says, it's done. I could preach the rest of my career just on this verse. If that's what it takes to convince you too. You see, the end of it all, the, the precious fact that God has you and me in view, that he sees us raised up with Christ Jesus, that he sees us seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2 both tell you that. The fact that he sees us as glorified, he says it's done. He says it's done. Now, I think there must be so much more to those words that Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. He knew the whole plan. And it was more than just dying on a cross for us that we might be set free from our sins, but that we might stand before the Father blameless and in complete joy, as Jude would tell us in chapter 1, there's only 1, 24 and 25. I've often said this, that only God can look into the future and speak in the past tense. And when he, when he speaks in these words, I see certainty. I see certainty all over these pages and all over these words. And you cannot wrestle it from me. I won't let go. Everything he has set out to do will be done according to his will. I do not doubt that in the least. When he says glorified, I believe glorified. When he says justified, I believe justified. I believe called and I believe predestined. Because the security of the believer is not wrapped up in the action of the believers, but in the actions of God. That's where it sits. It's what God has done. And I want that to settle in your hearts. Settle it in your heart. You will see so many beautiful things that God is doing. You will be much more appreciative of what God has done for you when you stop and realize it's not you who did this. God did it. Rest in that. That's your security. Call it what you want. Frosting on the cake. I, don't, I mean, it's wonderful to me to see that word and on top of it all. 
God is saying, and you are that important to me. You are that important to me. God so dearly loves you, so dearly loves you, that he gave his beloved son for you. You want a sneak peek on this one? Look at verse 32. Look at it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Wow. Wow. This is what God has done. So, you've got two words now in your mind. And, and all those ED little words that say, it's done. And it's done. And it's done. And it's done. Heavenly Father, you know exactly how to place this in the heart that needs it the most this morning. You know exactly how to raise us up and put us in the heavenly places, even in our thoughts right now. To give us joy, to give us confidence, to give us peace even now. Some people might have wrestled with that a great deal this week. They might have struggled with things in this world. They might have struggled with things of the flesh. They might have wondered many times over if you really loved them, if you cared for them, if you were active in their life. They might have had a lot of questions this week, Lord. But your word, which is true and will never, never go away. Your word that we anchor ourselves to says these things about us, what you have done, and how great they are to our soul. Thank you, Lord, for it. Thank you for what you have done. We rejoice in that. We've only had a glimpse of it. There's much more for us to learn. But, Lord, if you start right there with each of us, right there in showing us how much you love us, we will praise you with our mouths, with our lives. As we go forth from here, we will speak of certainty when we speak of our God and what he has done. Thank you. Thank you so much for your great love for us. We give you the praise, Lord. Maybe there's somebody today, Lord, that needs you. They've never turned to you, but they've heard these words and their hearts were warmed and their spirit's been pulling on them. Even now, may they call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Draw them to yourself, even now, Lord, for you're the only one who can do it. We pray that you might make a difference for eternity in the life of somebody today. We ask this now, and we always give you the praise in our Savior's name, the great name of our Lord Jesus Christ.